After my grandfather died at the age of 94 in 2018, my mother was working to settle his estate and inquired of my grandmother about the whereabouts of their marriage license so that she could have some particular funds transferred from his name into her name. Well, she couldn't find it, which was a bit peculiar given that she's kept all of her documents for decades to a fault. You can still find receipts from the 1980s in her desk drawers. So my mom did some research and found that she could obtain a copy on file at the county courthouse. But when asked to verify which county they filed in, my grandmother quipped, oh, you know, that, that courthouse burned down years ago. Okay, well, even more peculiar, my exceedingly thrifty grandmother said at one point, well, you know, I don't really need that money anyway. She was a child of the Great Depression. She never said that. Well, finally, my mom went to the courthouse herself and made a a surprising discovery. The date on the marriage license was not September 1947, as the family had always been told, but December 1947, which was less than nine months before the birth of my aunt, their oldest child. It was a shotgun wedding. Well, after 70 years of mostly happy marriage, I think it all turned out just fine. It certainly gave us some good laughs. Isn't it amazing? The secret shame and self-judgment we can carry all the way to the grave. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, there is no condemnation. Amen. Amen. On Calvary's cross, the Son of Man bore the weight of our shame, our sin, our baggage, our blame, so that we might know ourselves to be free accepted, loved. That is the gospel we strive to make known at All Saints, and especially to our young people who grow up in a pressure cooker of expectation, competition, comparison. Heavy on my heart, tonight we say goodbye to our beloved youth minister, Joel Smith, who has shared that message of God's love with our teens so effectively these past four years. And you are all, by the way, invited to his celebration in the courtyard tonight at 6.30. In light of this, I had the privilege of eavesdropping on a Zoom conversation Simon hosted for our youth during this season of transition. And a comment from one of them has stuck with me all week. This young woman said, I liked Joel because it was safe to go to him with questions that felt a little risky. Risky questions. I wonder what kind of risky questions are in your heart and mind this morning. Some are pointed and direct. When exactly were you married? Others are broad but potent, existential. Where does it hurt? What are you looking for? What do you really want? 
Risky questions can render us vulnerable and exposed. Honest, we're all sometimes shocking. Sometimes it's hard to hear the answer. Hard to bear the even riskier truth. Risky questions take us deeper into our true desires and fears. The Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs, is a treasure, and it poses many risky questions. Despite sometimes being attributed to King Solomon, who acts as a kind of biblical male pseudonym, it is probably, did you know, the only book in the Bible written almost entirely from a woman's perspective. So Bruce, you made, you made a fine woman today <laughs> at the lecture. <laughs> but um, did you know, not only is it from a woman's perspective, but a, a, a dark-skinned woman at that. In our new Revised Standard Version, the subject rever- refers to herself in the first chapter as black and beautiful, full of natural and sensual imagery. The Song of Songs is PG-13. It is a playful, passion-full, plotless love poem describing in evocative detail the affection between two beloveds. It's only eight chapters, and I encourage you to read it. Over 75% of it is in the voice of the woman protagonist. In today's passage, even the male partner's words are heard through the woman's voice. She says, my beloved speaks to me and says, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. It centers not only a woman's voice, but a woman's desire. And it's one of the only instances in the Bible in which such female desire does not appear within the context of domination, extortion, or abuse. Instead, providing a positive image of fully mutual, consensual, and celebrated sexuality. In the era of Me Too, and in a moment where we are holding the unknown plight of so many women and girls in Afghanistan in our prayers, oh, how the world needs a song of songs. It is a relatively risque text that raises some risky questions. First of all, where is God? Song of Songs is one of two books in the Bible that doesn't explicitly mention God by name, which begs another question, why then is it in the Bible? Over the centuries, a real discomfort with bodies has led Jewish and Christian traditions to often apply an allegorical interpretation in which the relationship of the two lovers represents the love of God towards Israel or the love of Christ towards the church. But a more plain, though not incompatible approach, recognizes that at face value, God simply is not named. Rather, the poem conveys the powerful capacity of human relationships to embody divine love, to be in harmony with creation, and to know through their life and love a God whose presence, bidden and unbidden, does not rely on human prose. God is there, 
even if God isn't named. How many of you in your life today are asking, where is God? Where is God? Bidden or unbidden, God is there, even if it's not abundantly, explicitly clear. Its inclusion in the Hebrew Bible was a matter of debate among rabbis in the first century. Some considered the Song of Songs little more than a vulgar drinking song. But the debate was settled by the revered mystic Rabbi Akiba. He said this, The whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel, for all the scriptures are holy. But the Song of Songs... It is the holy of holies. Songs, Song of Songs challenges the dualistic thinking that has dominated much of Western thought, in which spirit and flesh are opposed. In the Song of Songs, we see a theology in which real, embodied human love is in itself holy, in which human bodies are deemed beautiful and good, in which human sexuality is a God-given gift to celebrate, not a taboo to be hushed. Which brings us, perhaps, to the riskiest question for the church. Were the two lovers in the Song of Songs married or not? Most scholars agree, maybe, and probably not. There's no license on file at the courthouse for these two. (laughs) The text closely mirrors the secular Near East love poem genre. And the woman in Song of Songs is referred to as bride sometimes, but also sister in other places, both kind of general terms of endearment in the language. The fact that the female, female subject is continually chasing this guy around, looking for him, suggests they're probably not yet married. If they were, she would know where to find him. (laughs) Later in chapter 3, there is a wedding scene with King Solomon and all of his heirs and, 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 and horses and carriages, but most scholars believe that wedding scene was probably added later to make the book a bit more Jewish. In any case... Taken as a whole, the Song of Songs, with its very biblical images of kissing and caressing, flirting and fawning, creation bursting to life in the spring, Song of Songs invites us to consider a far more generous, less repressed ethic of human sexuality than, frankly, most of us grew up with. Consider Joshua Harris. He was the poster child of what became known as evangelical purity culture in the 80s and 90s. At the age of 17, he authored the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Published in 1997, it sold 1.2 million copies. It advocated for purposeful, marriage-driven, parentally involved courtship as opposed to dating, for the fun of it. The Reverend Nadia Boltz Weber, Lutheran pastor and author of Shameless, a Sexual Reformation, writes, 
that this movement for decades in America has told those wild, beautiful, ever-changing, hormone-soaked beings we call teenagers that in order to be good, in order to be pleasing to God, that they must disconnect from their bodies. They must repress any impure thoughts, desires, or feelings until they can punch the golden ticket of heterosexual marriage, preferably by age 22. That young people should not ever kiss each other or touch each other or even go on dates with each other. And we've all seen how that's worked out. Well, amazingly, Joshua Harris, the author himself, experienced a seismic change of heart and in 2018 actually unpublished and renounced the book, issuing a public apology for the untold spiritual, relational, and psychological distress caused to the generation of evangelical teenagers he mentored. Why? He started hearing the stories of pain and heartbreak from people who read the book and just wanted to belong and be good. He heard from gay kids who wouldn't report abuse they'd experienced because they thought it was a sin to be gay altogether. He heard from unwed mothers who felt like a disgrace, divorced adults who couldn't get past the shame. It caused many people to stay in unhealthy marriages and otherwise happy singles to feel like something was wrong with them. His book messed people up for life. His pursuit of purity caused pain for others. It drew lines in the sand and ostracized anybody, and there were many who just couldn't fit the mold. When he heard the stories, when he got close to the pain, he discovered that the pursuits of purity suffocated any semblance of grace, and his heart was changed. You know, apart from capital P, purity culture, there are endless purity cultures vying for our allegiance. They can look like inordinate religious zeal, yes, but they can also look like toxic brand loyalty, insistence upon complete ideological conformity, extreme diet cultures, and cancel cultures that excommunicate even partial nonconformists. In an age of all or nothing, too often to question anything becomes a risk in itself and an act of betrayal, even and especially within one's own party, team, or tribe. There's a fine line between cultures and cults. It turns out you can be a fundamentalist over just about anything. Notably, I was reflecting recently, and it occurred to me that in contrast to the division and polarization surrounding masks and vaccines, you know, the incessant use of hand sanitizer and surface cleaners 
at the onset of the pandemic generated little controversy. Unfortunately, we now know it really didn't do much. Of course, we'll keep washing up because it's good to do. But we now know that in terms of COVID, it amounts to little more than hygiene theater. The virus lives in our lungs and spreads through the air. In today's gospel reading, Jesus encounters a group of Pharisees concerned about his and the disciples' disregard for what might be considered a kind of ritual hygiene theater practiced by some Jews. They ask Jesus a risky question for him to answer. Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Not discounting our human capacity for evil and sin. He responds with a hard answer to hear. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. But the things that come out are what defile. And there's a laundry list. The things that defile live in here. So how do we cultivate pure hearts and souls? James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to care for orphans and widows, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. If indeed our bodies and spirits are not to be disconnected but integral, then the work of our hands actually has the power to change our hearts. When, like Harris, we get proximate, we get in touch with the pain present among our fellow image bearers, our lives are transformed by God's grace. This is what we learn in loving human relationships. We learn how to love one another well. And the closer we get, the closer we get to the pain and the sorrow and the joy. We develop empathy as we grow grow closer in relationship. We see and are seen by the face of God. When we get close to the pain, we realize that the presence of pain and poverty and famine in the world is itself a stain on the church in its abundance. We discover that not only does faith produce good works, but our good works, our deepening relationship, can generate deeper faith in the only one who truly purifies us from within. My friends, now and always, God invites us to deeper life in Christ. Beyond all the performance and the pretense and the theater beneath the surface, all the things we do to try to be good and whole, to control our destiny, earn our worth, keep up appearances, and justify our souls, all those things are vain before God, our true Redeemer. For none of the man-made expectations and obligations we impose on ourselves can truly defile, nor can they make us righteous. My risky question for you today is what self-constructed, self-imposed purity cultures might God be giving you an invitation to turn away from? that you might be freed from shame 
and fear. What received traditions and patterns of thinking and acting and believing have actually caused pain in yourself and others? How is God inviting you to unlearn all those things through loving others? Let us look in the mirror and let us not be deceived. Let us hold the complexity and hypocrisy present within all of us. Let us embrace our blemishes, our warts, our flaws, wrinkles, and all. Let us embrace our bodies this day. Let us not forget them. And let us know deep in our hearts that that person we see staring back in the mirror is exactly who God loves That is exactly who God calls good. Let us behold the image of God, our beloved, looking back, knowing that God sees and delights in us, bidden or unbidden, divine breath, holy presence, eternal flame of love, with us now and always, let us not forget. And let us go out into the pain and sorrow, and joy, and beauty of this weary world to share that unearned, indissoluble gift of grace we have received with widows and orphans and all those in need, all those we love and are called to love, responding faithfully, not out of fear or obligation, but sheer thanksgiving and gratitude to the God whose whole creation burst forth posing the question, the riskiest question of all, to each of us. Do you love me? Arise, my love, and come away.